0: Why don't you turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want to draw your attention to verse 13 and then make a comment or two by way of introduction to our topic and then... I uh, ask the Lord to bless our time together. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the verse up here on the screen for you as well. Notice what Paul writes, verse 13. He says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe." The apostle Paul here commends the believers in the city of Thessalonica for realizing that the scriptures he had delivered to them some years previously were not cleverly devised fables invented by men, nor the musings of some philosophers. Paul commends the Thessalonians for realizing that the scriptures he had given to them were the very word of God. Now, I'm sure that most of you who are here this morning believe that to be the case when it comes to the Bible. You're convinced that the Bible is the Word of God, written by men, yes, but men who were guided by God as they pinned down its words. You're convinced of that as I am. I think it's probably safe to say, though, that you probably have neighbors, coworkers, uh, maybe people in your own extended families who are not so confident in the Bible. Or they perhaps would be at church with you here this morning. They have questions about the Bible. Good questions. Questions like, how can we know the Bible isn't just an ancient book of fiction and folklore? Uh, And haven't the contents of the Bible been tampered with down through the centuries? And isn't the Bible out of sync with scientific discoveries? And what makes the Bible any different than other religious books, like the Quran or the Book of Mormon? Those are questions that intelligent, critical thinking people are asking today. Those are questions they have a right to ask. I think they should be asking us those questions. God doesn't require that non-Christians just believe everything we tell them they should believe. They have the right to ask these kinds of questions. And God's heart for us as his people is that we try our best to give them good answers. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says that we are to always be ready to make a defense, to, to explain to people the reasons why we have the hope that we have. So to help us better explain to people why we believe what we believe regarding the Bible, this morning I want to share with you seven different lines of evidence for the Bible. I want to give you a concise overview of seven different reasons I'm convinced the Bible is the Word of God and seven reasons why I believe any intelligent thinking person can come to that same conclusion as well. Let's ask God to bless this time and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this time we can get together with our brothers and sisters in the faith and worship you and now give attention to the scriptures. And God, as we take up this important topic, I pray that you would strengthen our confidence in the Bible. And God, that you would equip us to be better ambassadors of Christ, people who are more prepared to explain to people. Why we are confident that the Bible is what it claims to be. So, work here to that end, we pray now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, the first line of evidence I'd like to talk to you about for a few minutes is what we call fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. Of course, sports analysts, political experts, and even weather forecasters seem to enjoy making predictions about the future. But our failure rate quickly shows how inept humans are at foretelling future events, oftentimes even just a week in advance. Well, this is one of the reasons the Bible's fulfilled prophecies are so astounding. Over and over again, the authors of the Bible rightly foretold future events, oftentimes hundreds of years in advance. The Bible is literally filled with hundreds of specific detailed prophecies about persons, places, and events, many of which have already come to pass. Consider a few of the prophecies made regarding Jesus. Of course, long before Jesus was even born, the Old Testament prophets foretold that a Savior was coming into the world to make a way for mankind to be reconciled back into a right relationship with our maker. The Old Testament prophesied that this coming savior would be a descendant of Abraham, that he'd be born into the tribe of Judah and come into the world through the lineage of David. God began spelling that out all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 said that he would be born in the little town of Bethlehem. This was prophesied about 700 years Before Jesus was born there. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 said that he would be born of a virgin. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 declared that he would come while the Jewish temple was still standing. That's an interesting prophecy. Flavius Josephus, the first century historian, tells us that the Romans came into the city of Jerusalem in AD 70 and destroyed the Jewish temple. Well, the Old Testament prophets said that this coming Savior, this coming Messiah, would actually stand in the Jewish temple. That would require a pre-AD 70 coming for the Messiah. Isaiah 35 and elsewhere even foretold the kinds of miracles that he would perform. Check it out sometime. Isaiah chapter 35, it says that this coming Savior is going to open the eyes of the blind. He's going to unstop the ears of the deaf, and he's going to cause the lame to walk in in a way to validate who he was. Well, of course, these are the very kinds of miracles we read about in the New Testament accounts of Jesus' life. Isaiah 53 verse three prophesied that he would then be despised and forsaken by humanity. Psalm 118 verse 22 said he'd even be rejected by his own people. And of course, we know that's what happened. The Jewish people, for the most part, cast Jesus aside as the Savior, precisely like the Old Testament Jewish prophets said that they would. And they didn't stop there. Daniel chapter 9 prophesied the precise year in history that this coming Savior would die for the sins of the world. This is an amazing prophecy. Get out a good Bible commentary sometime on Daniel chapter 9. Daniel nails the very year of Jesus' crucifixion 6 months. 100 years in advance. How do you do that? You have to be working with someone outside of time who can see into the future. God himself knew the exact day Jesus would die, and he lets Daniel in on some of the details there in Daniel 9. Uh, Psalm 22 Uh, prophesied how this coming savior would die David writing more than a thousand years before Jesus was even born said that this coming savior's hands and feet are going to be pierced during his death now this might have been somewhat confusing to people back in David's day why is that well because this is at least 300 years before the art of crucifixion had even been invented Yet with the aid of the Holy Spirit, David was able to accurately describe the events surrounding Jesus' death a thousand years in advance. And they didn't stop there. Psalm 16 verse 10 and Isaiah 53 verse 10 prophesied that he would then rise from the dead. Friends, this is just a tiny sampling of some of the prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus' life. And there's hundreds of other prophecies in the Bible regarding the rise and fall of different nations and other matters that have been fulfilled. Well, the fulfillment of these prophecies is compelling evidence that these men spoke with the aid of the all-knowing, all-powerful God written about in the Bible. The God who declared in Isaiah chapter 46, verse nine and 10, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done in other words god says here there's no one else who can do this i alone am the only one who can do this and that certainly has proven to be the case there are no other books in the world today that are able to substantiate their claims with this kind of supernatural ability to rightly foretell human events There are no fulfilled prophecies in the Quran. There are no fulfilled prophecies in the Hindu Vedas, the Book of Mormon, or any other sacred religious writing. Not one. Fulfilled prophecy separates the Bible from every other book in the world today. And that is the first line of evidence that the Bible really is what it claims to be. Fulfilled prophecy. Let's consider a second line of evidence for the Bible. If you're taking notes, jot it down archaeological evidence. Archaeological evidence. Many critics who brush off the Bible as a compilation of folklore and legends do so overlooking the fact that thousands of archaeological discoveries over the past century or so have again and again validated the historical reliability of the Bible. And you don't need to take my word for it. You can take this man's word for it, Dr. Nelson Gluck on the cover of Time Magazine. Who's he? Well, he's considered to be one of the greatest artists archaeologists who have ever have lived, he's been credited with more than 1,500 archaeological discoveries in the Middle East. Now, when he weighed in some years back on whether or not archaeology had done anything to shed any kind of light on the reliability of the Bible, here's what this renowned expert had to say regarding the matter. He said, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted, in other words, overturned or disproved a biblical reference scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the bible and by the same token proper evaluation of biblical descriptions has often led to amazing discoveries dr nelson gluck Allow me to tell you about a few of these discoveries. This first one was found in the town of Dan, a little to the north of the Sea of Galilee there in Israel. Now, up until 1993, not a shred of evidence could be found anywhere outside of the Bible that David, the king of Israel, ever lived. And so the critics used to point that out. They'd say, well, (laughs) how can you Christians and Jews believe these stories about David? Here's one of the most beloved and powerful kings, supposedly, in all of Israel's history, and he's not mentioned anywhere outside of the Bible. And they thought that that lack of evidence proved that he was just a mythology or a person of mythology. Well, their skepticism regarding David collapsed overnight in 1993 when this piece of an ancient monument dating back to 900 years before Christ was discovered there in Israel, mentioning David, the king of Israel. As a result of that discovery, Time Magazine said, the skeptics claim that King David never existed is now hard to defend, indeed it is another fascinating discovery has to do with Pontius Pilate and by the way these aren't actual portraits of the persons um, in case you were wondering But uh, Pontius Pilate, who was he? Well according to the New Testament he was the Roman prefect or the Roman governor of Judea at the time of Christ he oversaw Jesus' trial and then of course had him sentenced to death by crucifixion, was he a legendary figure perhaps? no In June of 1961, a team of Italian archaeologists were digging here in the Mediterranean port city of Caesarea. While digging in the jumbled ruins of this theater, these archaeologists made an amazing discovery. They unearthed this limestone block that bore an inscription in Latin dating to the early part of the first century, mentioning Pontius Pilate, prefect or governor of Judea, This inscription verified for us that Pontius Pilate was an actual historical person, that he reigned in the very position ascribed to him in the Gospels, and that as prefect, he would have had the authority to condemn or pardon Jesus, just as the Gospel accounts report. Some other fascinating discoveries include ancient extra-biblical accounts of a catastrophic flood, Accounts that were written down after the flood as Noah's descendants spread out to different parts of the ancient world. Uh, The ruins of Jericho, along with the collapsed walls spoken about in the book of Joshua, chapter 6, have been identified by archaeologists. The ruins of Nineveh have been unearthed, where Jonah, of course, went and preached uh, back in the Old Testament. Uh, Hezekiah's tunnel's been unearthed, mentioned in Second Kings chapter 20. This tunnel was built to secretly channel water into the city of Jerusalem so that the Jews could survive an enemy's siege on the city. You can go to Israel today and walk through that very tunnel built about 700 Uh, BC. The pool of Siloam has been identified, mentioned in John chapter 9. This is where Jesus sent the blind man with the mud on his eyes and told him to wash, and of course where his eyes were miraculously opened up. Uh, Jacob's well has been unearthed by archaeologists. It's covered today by a Greek Orthodox church, but this is the very well Jesus sat down with a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. Um, Herod's palace on top of this hill overlooking the Dead Sea, mentioned in Mark chapter 6, has been identified it's currently being excavated by a team of hungarian archaeologists but this is the very fortress where john the baptist was imprisoned. they've even found the underground dungeons where the prisoners were chained to the walls the very place where john the baptist spent his final days uh, this synagogue has been unearthed in Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee there in Israel. This, this synagogue is mentioned in Mark chapter 1, verse 21. It's a place where Jesus himself often taught. Friends, you can go to Israel today and see these and thousands of additional archaeological discoveries with your own eyes. They are an amazing evidence of the Bible's historical reliability. If you'd like to learn more about these discoveries, I've written a full-color book on the topic. Uh, It has more than 100 color photographs of these different archaeological discoveries, of which I just briefly mentioned a few here for you this morning. So number one, we have hundreds of fulfilled prophecies. Number two, we have thousands of archaeological discoveries, and we're just getting warmed up. I think these are two compelling reasons alone to reconsider your skepticism of the Bible if you're one to, uh, to have that view. Let's consider a third line of evidence, though, for the Bible, and that is the Bible's internal consistency. The Bible's internal consistency, what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the Bible's internal harmony. From the first book of the Bible, Genesis, to the last book, the book of Revelation, the Bible is perfectly consistent in what it is teaches. Now, someone objects and says, well, hold on a second here, Charlie. Uh, uh, Why is that an evidence of the Bible's trustworthiness? There are plenty of books that are internally consistent, internally harmonious. I agree. Years ago, before I went into pastoral ministry, this would be back in the mid-1990s, I worked at a surfing magazine in Laguna Beach, California, and we put out Yeah. (laughs) We put out an internally consistent magazine every 30 days. The authors of the different articles never contradicted one another. Does that mean then perhaps that we too were writing down God inspired scripture every month? No. No, I can assure you of that. Well, then what makes the Bible any different than some other book or magazine that's internally? harmonious, internally consistent. Well, let me share with you a few reasons why I think the internal harmony of the Bible is powerful evidence of its divine origin. Factor number one is this. The Bible addresses life's most controversial questions. The Bible addresses life's most controversial questions. At the surfing magazine, we wrote about who won the latest surf contest. It was usually Kelly Slater. Uh, Surf wax, sunscreen, (laughs) sunscreen. I thought it was hugely important at the time. Uh, looking back on it now, I mean, it seems a little trivial. Really? Sunscreen? Surf wax? Yeah, yeah that's pretty much what we wrote about. But uh, these are, That's not what the authors of the Bible were writing about. We're not talking about surf wax and sunscreen. No, from beginning to end, the authors of the Bible are tackling the big questions of life. Questions like, how did the universe come into existence? We never talked about that at the magazine. Uh, Does God exist? And if so, what is he like? And, And why do people exist? Why is there evil and suffering in the world? And what happens to people after they die? Those are the big controversial questions of life. Those are the questions people tend to disagree about. Just ask your neighbors. And yet these are the very questions the authors of the Bible tackle head on chapter after chapter, book after book, from beginning to end, and they do so absolutely consistently. A second factor that makes the internal harmony of the Bible evidence of its divine origin is this. The Bible is a collection of 66 different documents. 66 different documents. Now, it might be easy to have internal harmony in the Bible if the Bible was a single book. But it's not a single book. It's a compilation of more than five dozen different documents. Factor number three, the Bible was written by approximately 40 different authors who wrote in three different languages. Can you imagine the chaos you might expect to find in a book that has 40 different authors writing in three different languages? I think it might be easy to have internal harmony in a book like the Quran. Why is that? Well, because it contains the teachings of how many people? Just one, Muhammad, born about 570 years after Jesus. Well, the Bible is entirely different than the Quran in this regard. It contains the teachings, the writings of 40 plus people. Factor number four, the Bible was written over a period of approximately 1,500 years. 1500 plus years many of the authors did not even know one another and not only were many of them separated by hundreds of years in time factor number five many of the authors were separated by hundreds of miles geographically the bible is written down in different places on three different continents different places in africa asia and europe Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of pulling together today 40 different people spread out over 1,500 years who live on three different continents, who speak three different languages, and ask them to write 66 documents regarding life's most controversial issues, I'm thinking we're probably going to have some serious problems. Uh, That book is going to be one of the most confusing, challenging books you've ever attempted to read. Yet, in spite of these factors, the Bible is a perfectly harmonious, consistent account of how God is seeking to reconcile sinners like you and me back into relationship with himself. This internal consistency, I believe, is amazing evidence that the authors of the Bible were being guided by the Holy Spirit as they penned the different books of the Bible, So that's a third line of evidence that the Bible is the Word of God, the Bible's internal consistency. Let's consider a fourth line of evidence for the Bible, extra-biblical writings. Extra-biblical writings, what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the fact that there are dozens of writings that survive outside of the Bible, in the records of the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Romans that verify the historical accuracy of the Bible's records of different persons, places, and events. As for persons, external sources verify that more than 50 persons mentioned in the Old Testament and more than 30 persons written about in the New Testament were actual historical figures, Did you realize that? More than 80 persons mentioned in the Bible have been located in historical sources outside of the Bible. That's why when someone tells me the Bible is just a bunch of myths, (laughs) the whole thing was just made up. Really? Even the people? Yeah. I think this person doesn't know what they're talking about. Unfortunately, a lot of people take that stand though. I think the Bible is just a pure invention from beginning to end. Uh, as for biblical events that have extra biblical corroboration, the examples are off the chart. Let me just share with you two quick examples, one from the Old Testament and one from the New we're told in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came against the southern kingdom of Judah. The year was 605 BC. We're told that the Babylonians besieged the city of Jerusalem and then took many of the Jews, including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, captive back to the city of Babylon in modern-day Iraq. This is talked about in 2 Kings chapter 24 and Daniel chapter 1. Well, this has been confirmed outside of the Bible. Thousands of ancient Babylonian clay tablets containing a treasure trove of information about Babylon's history were unearthed in Babylon in the mid-19th century. They are known now as the Babylonian Chronicle tablets, and they tell us of the very siege against Jerusalem written about in 2 Kings 24 and Daniel chapter 1 and the fact that the Babylonians then took the Jewish people captive back to Babylon. Of course, all of this goes to show what the authors told us in the Bible was the truth regarding the matter. We have this extra biblical corroboration. Let me give you a quick example from the New Testament. The New Testament tells us that Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas cast John the Baptist into prison for condemning Antipas's adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. This is spoken about in Matthew chapter 14. Well, sometime later, an executioner came and John was beheaded. You're familiar with that. Well, this, is, this too has been confirmed outside of the Bible. Flavius Josephus, that first century historian working for the Roman Empire, talks about Herod Antipas. He writes about Herod's adulterous wife and the murder of John the Baptist in his book Antiquities of the Jews here's a short excerpt from Josephus' writings notice who he mentions here in the top line he says John that was called the Baptist was a good man and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism. Herod, who feared the great influence John had over the people, sent John, a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper, to Machaerus, the castle I before mentioned, and was there put to death and i put a photo of Machaerus, the ruins of that fortress that josephus mentions up on the screen for you a couple of minutes ago but notice that josephus verifies for us that john the baptist was an actual person and that he was put to death by herod antipas just as the bible says some other historical sources outside of the bible Corroborate details surrounding the flood, long lifespans prior to the flood, details surrounding the Exodus, the Assyrian invasion of Israel, Cyrus's freeing of Jews from Babylon, Jesus's crucifixion during the Feast of Passover. Josephus talks about that. Uh, the prolonged darkness on the day Jesus died, Herod Agrippa's sudden death after being hailed as a god in the Book of Acts, and the expulsion of Jews from Rome also talked about in the Book of Acts. So. Friends, critics who brush off the Bible as a compilation of folklore and ancient fiction only reveal that they have not done any serious investigation into this matter. If you'd like to learn more about these events that have been verified outside of the Bible, I write more about them in this book called Scrolls and Stones. Uh, The subtitle is Compelling Evidence the Bible Can Be Trusted. We've got some of those out in the foyer. All right, let's consider a fifth line of evidence for the reliability of the Bible. If you're taking notes, the Bible's scientific accuracy and foresight. The Bible's scientific accuracy and foresight. Now, of course, many critics of the Bible would disagree that the Bible is scientifically accurate. They point to verses like Joshua chapter 10, verse 13, that says the sun stood still, or John's reference to the four corners of the earth in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. And they conclude that the Bible teaches that the sun revolves around a flat, four cornered earth. Well, they are overlooking the fact that the writers of the Bible were not writing a technical textbook on astronomy. They were describing things as they appeared to the eye, as was the case with Joshua 10. Or they were employing normal figures of speech, as was the case with John's reference to the four corners of the earth. And we, living in this scientifically advanced age today, still do the exact same thing thing we don't wake up early in the morning throw open the eastern window and say what a beautiful earth rotation come and talk to me if that's what you call a sunrise okay we call it a sunrise don't we well scientifically speaking that is incorrect terminology the sun's not rising the earth is rotating uh, but meteorologists on the nightly news tell us every night what time the sun set Will be, we don't accuse them of being unscientific. No, they're just using simple, straightforward language to describe the way things appear to be taking place. When the Apostle John referred to the four corners of the earth in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, he was using a figure of speech to describe the extremities of the land in the four cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west. And we still use this exact same figure of speech today. In fact, I was on on CNN.com just a few months ago, and uh, one of their reporters had died, unfortunately. But in this memorial that they had kind of written up about this reporter, they finished off this article by saying, and CNN for the past 30 years has been proud to send out reporters to the four corners of the earth. They use the exact same phrase that the Apostle John used in Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. Now, I didn't see people protesting outside CNN headquarters uh, for teaching a flat earth. No, we realize that's a figure of speech. So keeping in mind that the writers of the Bible describe things in simple terms as they appeared to the eye and that they employed figures of speech, metaphors, personification, and such, does away with many of the alleged scientific inaccuracies in the Bible. Now, granted, the scriptures are out of sync with some of the philosophies and theories some scientists hold to. The most obvious being atheistic naturalism and the theory of biological macroevolution. If a scientist believes today that everything that exists came into being from nothing and by nothing and then evolved into its current condition via a mindless series of unguided natural causes, then yes, the Bible is out of sync with that. But that goes without saying. But when it comes to known, testable, verifiable facts, the Bible has been found to be in perfect harmony with the way things really are, which is astounding if you think about it, because as you know, the Bible was written two to 4,000 years ago, long before the invention of microscopes, telescopes, satellites, and other technologies that have allowed us to investigate our Earth and the universe. The fact that the Bible was written so long ago touches on a myriad of topics and yet does not contain any scientific errors might be considered evidence for divine inspiration all on its own. Why is that? Well, without exception, every ancient religious writing has certain unscientific views of astronomy medicine hygiene and so on for example the hindu vedas teach that the earth is flat and triangular they also teach that earthquakes are the result of elephants shaking their bodies underneath the ground i wish that was what was happening (laughs) we live here in southern california we feel a shake or two right once or twice a year on average. Don't you wish that was what was happening? That sounds a lot safer to me than the San Andreas Fault is actually slipping and we may die. <laughs> I love to just remind my wife, it's just the elephants, dear. Calm down. <laughs> but the Quran and the Book of Mormon have these kinds of errors as well, and we document them uh, in a pretty in-depth fashion on our website, which I don't, I'm just, I don't know, I don't, don't have a slide for it. If you want to write down our website, it's alwaysbeready.com. You can get some further facts along the lines there, but... The Bible steers free of these kinds of errors, but not not only that, it makes known amazing facts about our world and the universe thousands of years before scientists discovered that they were actually true. Allow me just to share with you two quick examples. We've got a much longer list on our website, but this first one has to do with the shape of the earth. The shape of the earth. The ancient Egyptians, Babylonians, and Chinese are all on the record, the historical record for having taught that the earth is flat. Well, the Bible remarkably went against the prevailing views of the day and indicated that the earth was actually a round sphere. Where so? Well, in a book thought to be written about 2000 BC, Job chapter 26, verse 10 tells us, That God has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. Well, that's fascinating. Let me break that down for you. Job says God has drawn a circle on the surface of the waters, which is a reference to the oceans. Where? At the boundary, he says, of light and darkness. And darkness. This boundary between light and darkness is where evening and morning occur, depending on what side of the planet you reside. Notice that the boundary, though, is not a square or a triangle, it's a circle. Why is that? Well, because the earth is round. Job nailed it 2,000 years before Christ was even born. Uh, long before anyone else even figured this, this kind of stuff out. Another verse that speaks of the circular shape of the earth is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. Uh, Isaiah says that God sits above the circle of the earth. This was written about 700 BC. A second example of the Bible's scientific accuracy and, and foresight uh, concerns the suspension of the earth what am I talking about? Well, ancient Hindus believed that the earth rested on the backs of elephants who stood on the back of a turtle that swims through an endless sea of milk. Okay? That's some turtle. That's all I've got to say. You find that turtle out there? <laughs> Let's get a picture of that thing. But uh, there are all kinds of theories long ago. Some of the ancient Greeks believed that the mythical god Atlas carried the earth on his shoulders, a burden given to him as punishment by Zeus, something has to support the earth, people reasoned. Well, what did the Bible have to say regarding the matter? Well, again, in one of the oldest books in the Bible, Job says in Job 26, verse 7, that God stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. No turtles. No elephants. God has suspended the earth completely unattached in space this is astounding friends scientists were still trying to figure these things out thousands of years later now these kinds of statements in the bible raise an obvious question how in the world did the authors of the bible living that long ago know these kinds of matters were they taking wild guesses perhaps I don't think so. I think their perfect accuracy rules this out, especially when you consider they made dozens of these kinds of statements. I just share with you two quick examples. Well, the Bible doesn't leave us in the dark as to how they knew these kinds of things. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, for example, says men of God spoke as they took wild guesses. No, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Men of God spoke as they were moved to do so by the Holy Spirit. That is to say that the God who knows all there is to know about the universe he created, he superintended the writing of the Bible. That is to say he came alongside the writing of the Bible to make sure that what these men penned down accurately reflected the way things really are in the universe he created. Now, so far in our time together, we've considered five different lines of reasons uh, to trust in the Bible. Uh, we're going to quickly consider two more here momentarily. I want to pause right here, though, and point something out to you. I have purposely arranged these first five evidences in the order that I have so that if you can remember the simple acronym FACES, F. A-C-E-S, you'll have a bit of a memory aid to work from the next time you are looking into the faces of your friends or coworkers who are laughing or questioning your confidence in the Bible. You can have a little bit of a framework in your mind to work from. The F can remind you that you can talk to them for a minute or two about fulfilled prophecy. The A reminds us of archaeological evidence. The C reminds us of the Bible's internal consistency. The E reminds us of extra biblical verification. And the S reminds us of the Bible's scientific accuracy and foresight. Now, we still have time to consider two more lines of evidence. Let's consider the sixth line for a couple of minutes, manuscript evidence. Manuscript evidence, what am I talking about? Well, well well-known critics like this man, Bart Ehrman, uh, Muslims and Mormons as well, commonly say that the Bible has been translated and copied so many times down through the centuries, we can't trust what it says today, even if the Bible was once Trustworthy. Well, as popular as this belief has become in our culture today, it is a mistaken one, and the manuscript evidence proves this to be the case. What is a manuscript? What am I talking about? Well, a manuscript is any surviving handwritten copy of an ancient document that predates the invention of the printing press in 1455. Well, today there survives more than 25,000 partial and complete handwritten manuscript copies of the New Testament, many dating back to within the first century or two following Jesus' life. And we also possess thousands of manuscript copies of the Old Testament books, many of them even predating the time of Christ. Did you realize that? We have today in our possession, not here at the local church, but in different museums, we have handwritten copies of Old Testament books penned by Jewish scribes that were copied down prior to the birth of Christ more than 2,000 years ago. Let me tell you how they were found. Fascinating quick story. In 1947, a shepherd boy tending his father's sheep in Qumran, north and to the west of the Dead Sea there in Israel, made an amazing discovery while looking for a lost goat. And if you ever go on a guided tour of Israel, they'll typically take you to this place, Qumran. But there in Qumran, in a hillside cave that had laid untouched for nearly 2,000 years, this 12-year-old Muslim boy, ironically, Uh, discovered a collection of large clay jars containing carefully wrapped leather manuscripts. What this boy stumbled upon was an ancient collection of handwritten copies of the Old Testament that dated as far back as the third century Before Christ. This was truly an incredible discovery. Well, archaeologists were called in and then spent years searching the surrounding caves. By the time they were done, copies of every book of the Old Testament had been found, with the exception of Esther. In some cases, there were multiple copies of the same book. For example, there were 19 copies of the book of Isaiah, 25 copies of Deuteronomy, and 30 copies of the Psalms. What you're seeing right now on the screen is one of the original clay jars and a photograph of one of the scrolls of psalms here's a photograph of one of the scrolls of isaiah this particular scroll there on the screen has been dated to at least a hundred years before christ when they opened it up it was 26 feet long not a single chapter missing when compared to a modern day copy of the book of isaiah now, why do I mention the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, because manuscripts like the Dead Sea Scrolls have allowed biblical scholars and textual critics to go back and verify that the Bible we have and use today is the same Bible the early church had and used two thousand. Years ago. And it's important to point out to you that even if we did not have any surviving manuscript copies of the Bible, there's another way of verifying that we have accurate copies of the Bible, and that's by examining the writings of the church. Fathers By church fathers, I'm referring to those leaders in the church of the first three centuries following the original disciples. Men like Ignatius, Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Polycarp, and others preserved the Bible for us in their writings, in their commentaries, and in their sermons. Well, how did they do that? Well, by including numerous quotations of the Bible in what they wrote. In fact, these men quoted the New Testament alone more than 86,000 times. And here's something many people don't realize, including most Christians. Many of the writings of the church fathers survive to this day. You can go to Amazon.com this afternoon and buy an encyclopedic size set of the writings of the Church Fathers, 38 volumes, and see with your own eyes their numerous quotations of both the Old and New Testaments. In fact, there are enough quotations just from the early Church Fathers that even if we did not have a single manuscript copy of the Bible, scholars could still reconstruct most of the New Testament we have today just from their writings, just from their quotations. And so if you're questioning, wow, you know, I wonder if the Bible really does say the same thing. Well, you can go back and look at what the early church fathers said back in the, second, the first, second, and third centuries and find out what it used to say 2,000 years ago and hold it side by side with what your Bible says today. And you'll see that it says the same thing that it used to now, none of this should come as a surprise to us that God has preserved his word. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. God's watching over and preserving his word for every generation. All right, let's head down the home stretch here and consider a seventh and final line of evidence that we have time to talk about and that is the persecution the early Christians endured. The persecution the early Christians endured Flavius Josephus, uh, Eusebius, Tertullian, and other independent extra-biblical sources record for us that many of Jesus' earliest followers, including the apostles, suffered intense persecution and even death for their ongoing belief and preaching that Jesus was Lord and was risen from the dead. We're told in these extra-biblical sources that Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, was slain with an axe. In Ethiopia. We're told that Mark, the author of the gospel of Mark, died in the city of Alexandria in northern Egypt after having been cruelly dragged to death through the streets of that city. We're told that Luke, the author of the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, was hung to death upon an olive tree in Greece. We're told that the apostle John was tortured and then exiled to the isle of Patmos. We're told that James, the brother of John, was beheaded with a sword in the city of Jerusalem. Luke tells us about this as well in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. Uh, We're told that Philip was hung up against a pillar in the city of Hierapolis and then stoned to death. We're told that Bartholomew was flayed alive. Jude shot to death with arrows. Andrew, Peter's brother, one of the 12, bound to a cross with rope and then left to die. We're told that Barnabas was stoned to death. We're told that Paul, after a variety of floggings, tortures and persecutions, was finally beheaded uh, in the city of Rome. We're told that Thomas was run through the body with a spear in Southeast India. And we're told that Peter was crucified in Rome on a cross upside down. Question for you, were these men lying? Were these men lying? I find it very hard to believe that men willing to die excruciatingly painful deaths for their belief in Jesus, for telling people about Jesus, that they were just making up a story about him. Nobody willingly endures persecution and these kinds of deaths for something they are just making up. Oh, sure, there are Muslim terrorists today who are willing to die and unfortunately murder people for what they believe in, Islam. But that's because they think Muhammad was a prophet. And Muhammad promised that those who die in jihad would gain immediate entry to paradise and 72 virgins. And so some Muslim men, thinking that's true, hoping that's true, are willing to die in jihad. But, If those Muslim men lived back in the 7th century, at the time of Muhammad, and knew for certain that Muhammad was not a prophet of God, well, then they would not be strapping explosives around their waist and blowing themselves up. People don't die willingly for someone they know is a false prophet. And people certainly don't lay down their lives for someone they've just invented. And so the deaths of the disciples, the fact that they were willing to die these kinds of deaths to me is very compelling evidence that these men were not inventing a story about Jesus. These men were telling us the truth about this person. Friends, you can trust the Bible. You can trust the Bible. And so I encourage you here in closing, don't let it gather dust. God had it written for you. He gave us the Bible because he he wants to encourage you. He wants to uh, remind you of who he is. He wants to give you wisdom for the decisions you're facing. He wants to teach you how to live a fruitful life that he can bless. And he wants to have a relationship with you. That's why Jesus, God in the flesh, died on the cross. Because of his great love for you. The Bible says he died there in your place to suffer the judgment that you deserved for your sins so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be rescued from spending eternity in hell and be brought back into a right relationship with him. He rose from the grave three days later, and today he's offering all of mankind the free gift of everlasting life and the forgiveness of sins to all who will turn from their sin and place their faith in Jesus. if you need to be reconciled to your maker, today is the day. Don't put it off. Your life could come to a screeching halt much sooner than you think. And when you stand before your maker, you want to make sure you've been cleansed of your sins. But there's only one way that can happen, and that's if you have a relationship with the only person in the universe who can save you, and that is Jesus Christ. How do you get right with the Lord? Well, Romans chapter 10 says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved how simple is that it gets a little more detailed if you want i mean paul says uh, if you confess with your mouth that jesus is lord and believe in your heart god raised him from the dead you shall be saved that's all god wants he wants you to acknowledge that you're a sinner but that you confess jesus is lord you say god I, i am a sinner and i can't save myself but i i believe jesus that you did die on the cross for my sins and I'm casting myself upon you to be saved. That kind of heartfelt prayer, that's what God's waiting for. He'll forgive you of your sins. He'll grant you everlasting life in his kingdom. Take advantage of that offer while it still exists because after you die, it'll be too late. Amen? Amen. Hey, before we close in prayer and we have the worship team come back up, I want to quickly mention... That we have this entire presentation on DVD. If you'd like to go back over anything I talked about today, we've got it pre recorded at another church. It's not a documentary, it's me giving a presentation in front of a live congregation. We fade in all the PowerPoint slides that you saw up here on the screen. The DVD, though, is longer, it's 80 minutes long. So it's about twice the length of what I went through today. I cover 10 lines of evidence for the Bible in a more in-depth fashion. So I thought we'd highlight that and let you know we've got some of those available. Um, And then also I have a brand new DVD out. It's called Answers to Atheist Attacks on Jesus. Atheists today are saying all kinds of crazy things about Jesus, and I seek to help uh, answer some of those. They say things like, well, there's no good evidence Jesus ever even existed. And if he did, the gospels contradict one another. And they were written down hundreds of years after Jesus lived. And the earliest Christians never even believed Jesus was God. And they purposely left out other gospels from the New Testament that told us the real truth about Jesus. Ever heard any of those kinds of objections? (laughs) They're very popular in our culture today. I respond to those in that DVD. And so I thought I'd that would be helpful to point out as well. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for this time. We've just barely touched on the mountain of evidence for the reliability of the Bible. And Father, we're thankful, Lord, to be reminded here today that we haven't followed after cleverly devised fables. Um, we don't have blind faith. Our faith is rooted and grounded in the truth. And we're thankful for that today, God. Thank you for that reminder. But Lord, we also realize it's one thing to know the Bible is trustworthy and it's a whole other thing to live like we really believe that to be the case. And so God, we pray today for fresh Holy Spirit power to live out the Christian life. Lord, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters here that you would give us a a new thirst and hunger to read the Bible, to obey what we read and to draw near to you, Lord, to get to know you better. And Lord, I pray that you would give us a new burden to share the gospel with people. There are people perishing all around us here in Southern California. Lord, we need to get the gospel out to them while there's still time. Help us to do that. And Lord, even if there would be a person here in our midst today who still needs to be reconciled to you, we pray that today, even during this last song, that today would be the day that they would call out to you in prayer. Help them to do that, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.